Good morning. As we said, we're excited to start a brand new series today uh, called Hallelujah. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We'll be there in just a minute. But let me kind of give you an overview and an idea of of what the word and what the meaning of the word Hallelujah is. And so that's kind of really where we're going with this whole series to talk about and center around the messages in this series on that one word, its meaning, its definition, its purpose, the practicality of what it is in our lives, not just old language or Hebrew words, but actually what it does for us and what it means to us. And so this word hallelujah is really a compound word in the sense that it's two different Hebrew words brought together into one. And so let's, let's divide that out into its two parts. So the word hallelujah starts with hallelujah, which simply just means to praise. So that's, that's the Hebrew word that says you just praise and you lift your praise. The second part is, is probably more meaningful than the first part because when this word came to being, there were a lot of people in the world and still today who are okay with worshiping. They're okay with praising. They'll lift their praise to their boyfriend or they'll lift their praise to their spouse or we lift our praise to our our bosses when they give us a pay raise and a promotion, right? But other times we don't really lift that praise. And so the last part of this idea of praising is important because the last part is y'all, which is short for Yahweh. And so when the people of God would use this word hallelujah, it simply just meant in its most simplistic form was to praise Yahweh, which means to praise God. And Yahweh was the name that wasn't given to God. It was the name that he gave to himself. He declared himself to be Yahweh. This is who I am. And it's a personal name that he gave himself. If you go back in the Old Testament, you'll see that word, that name used at least 5,000 times. Now, when you open your Bible and go back and look for the word Yahweh, it's typically translated today as Lord, which another definition is Adonai, but it's also Lord. And so when you go through the Old Testament and you see Lord, most of the time, that's the idea of Yahweh. So God gives himself this personal name that we see over and over again to define himself. And we see it used in Exodus chapter 3 when the leader of Israel, which are the people that God used to let other people in the world know who he was, So as he's going to the people, Moses, God says, this is who I want you to tell that I am. So verse 15, he says, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And so he says, Moses, when you go to tell the people, who are you coming on behalf of? Who is sending you? You say, Yahweh has sent me. And that Yahweh is not just a personal name of God, but it's also connected to another Greek or another Hebrew verb. And that verb simply means I am. So God says, I'm Yahweh, which in the, in the proper sense or the, the most mechanical sense or the most powerful sense, really, God says, I am. This is who I am. Say, well, who is he? God says, I am. Well, what does he do? I am. What's he like? I am. Because God is just saying, anything you can think, anything you can imagine, any characteristic or possibility or character trait that you would like for a God to have, God says, I am. Not the negative evil ones, but anything that you would want for good and for glory and for majesty, God says, I am. If you need something majestic, I am. If you need somebody to know somebody that's powerful, God says, that's who I am. If you need somebody who's a rescuer and a savior, God says, that's me, I am. So anything that you need, anything that you have desire of, that's who I am, which is what he said in the previous verse in chapter three, verse 14. He says this very simply, I am who I am. He's like, I was around before Popeye. I am who I am. I don't need spinach. I just simply am. That's who I am. Anything you need, anything you want. Because he's declaring himself simply to be. That he's existed forever. 
that no one has created him. He has pre-existence before anything that man could ever know or design or divine or, de- or try to plan. God says, this is, this is me. I've existed for all time. I'm powerful. I'm majestic. I'm the one who actually created all the things that you know and experience. So anything you could think of, that's me. That's who I am. But God does not design to be or desire to be this impersonal being. This distant proper, we come before him and we say, we respect you, we're in awe of you, you're majestic, you're powerful, we get on our knees before you because we're afraid of you, because you're above all things, anything we could imagine or understand because of your power and might and majesty. God never desired to just simply be distant and to be proper. He takes his amness, I am, I am great, I am powerful, and he takes this huge majesty and might and he wraps it in this personal name. Yahweh. God says, at the core of who I am, I'm everything you could ever need or ever want. I can overcome any obstacle or any circumstance you could ever face. But on the exterior and all through me, holy, I am personable. I am knowable. I am intimate. I am here with you. I am not just a God who's powerful and distant. I'm a God who wants to have a relationship with every single one of my creation. And I have made it possible for you to know me. Because I'm Yahweh, I'm Abba, I'm Father, I'm Dad. And so for you and I, when we take this idea of praising God, we take this idea of lifting and raising our hallelujah, we sing songs in in power and majesty and might because we sing to God the greatness of who he is. But at the very same time, in another sense, we sing to God this intimacy and this humility and this need of God because we have this relationship with him. So when we sing these songs, we have this power and might and majesty. And when we sing these songs to God, we're opening our hearts to show him vulnerability and humility and say, God, I need you to intimately know me. I'm in a season, I'm in a moment where I'm in despair or I am in great need. And God says, whatever you need, I am. I'm not a genie in a bottle to answer every wish you have. But anything you could ever need in your life, I am there. I can make it happen. But at the same time, I want to know you and I want to be with you. But we don't, here's, here's the thing, we don't sing songs just out of emotion, which unfortunately we, we get accused of, rightly or wrongly. We don't sing songs just because we're in this pit and in this need and we, we cry out because, God, I just had this feeling of fear and emotion and I'm scared or I'm angry or I'm upset. We don't just sing out of emotion because singing out of emotion leads to nothing, It just makes us feel a little bit better for a short period of time because we got it off our chest even though the circumstance hasn't changed. We don't sing songs out of emotion. We sing songs with substantive value. We sing songs that have grit and have depth and have meaning because when we sing, we sing the word of God back to him. We sing the principles of God to him. We sing the very characteristics and the nature of who he is, the power, the might, the majesty, the father, the care, the one who walks alongside. We sing those things back to him. So we don't sing with no value. We're saying, God, this is who you are. I'm ascribing value and worth because simply that's who you are. And this is what the, the Jewish people have done for centuries. Every time that they gather, they gather before their national days of celebration. And they take this idea of hallelujah and they break it down even further into a smaller word that is simply called hallel, which means to praise. And hallel is not just a shortened version of hallelujah. Hallel is actually an act that they go through and that they walk through on those Jewish holidays. 
they will take this Hallel, which is Psalms 113 through Psalm 118, and they will gather together the entire city. All of the people there will gather together and they will sing these verses back to God. They will chant these. They will joyously gather together and lift back to the God of the universe these things that he has written about himself and that he has told mankind. So we don't sing with no value. We're saying, God, this is your character. This is your nature. This is your provision. And this is me as one of your creation in need of you in this moment. And we continue to sing those songs back to him. And look, if you say, I don't don't sing. All of creation sings to their creator. You say, I don't sing very well, then don't sing very loud. (laughs) Just sing. Or sing loud and don't care. Right? Don't care what anybody says because it's not for them. It it doesn't matter to them because you're lifting, you're praising. You're not hallelujah neighbor. You're not praising your neighbor. You're hallelujah, Yahweh. You're giving your praise to God. And so you're proclaiming this power and greatness to him. And in those moments where you don't know how you're going to make it through, you continue to lift and you praise God in those needs. You praise God in those moments, trusting him that he has the ability to do what he says that he can do. And so we sing to him because of his greatness. We sing to him because of his power. We sing to him because of his might. We sing to him because we have need. But most importantly, we sing to him simply because he is. I am. And so therefore, we praise him for his existence and his greatness and his love and for his care and his power. And so today I want to start us off to show us a, a time in history, a time in the Old Testament in Second Chronicles where the people of God actually lifted and raised and, and praised God with their song. And if you go back a little bit into their history, what I want to show you is that the people of God, the people of Israel, were the ones, as we said, that God was going to show the world that he, who he was. And unfortunately, they're a lot like you and I. They kind of had issues and troubles and family dynamics didn't always play out the way they were supposed to. And so there was a division within the family or within the nation. And they divided for a period of time after David and Solomon divided into a northern kingdom and to a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was known as Israel and the southern kingdom was known as Judah. And unfortunately for Israel, every single king that they had for that period of division was evil. They had no righteous leader They had no one who really wanted to faithfully obey God. And so Israel went through struggle after struggle after struggle. And so maybe we have some hope for Judah. Maybe Judah was better. Judah was, but only slightly. Still, most of their leaders struggled with faithfulness and with obedience. However, there was one who came not long after Solomon, who was to that point after David and Solomon, the the most faithful, greatest king they had had up to that period in time. And his name was Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat was this man who... If you follow him through chapter 17, 18, 19, and 20, you see a little picture of his story. And so I want to start for a couple of verses in chapter 17 to show you who he was and what God was doing in his life and in the people before we get into the rest of the story in chapter 20. So chapter 17, verse 3. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat. Now you can say his name Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat. You can say it a lot of different ways. But for simplicity, we'll say the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the earlier ways of David, which was the greatest king Israel and probably the world had ever known. So this man desired to be faithful, desired to be obedient. He did not seek after the Baals, which were false gods, but instead he walked with and sought after the God of his father. And he walked with them. He walked in those commandments and he walked not according to the practices of Israel. Remember, Israel was evil because of the evil kings that they 
had followed. And so he didn't practice the evil things that the kings of Israel practiced. Continuing in verse 5. It says, instead, therefore, the Lord established the kingdom in his hand because he was faithful, because he was following God. And all Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat, and he had great riches and honor. His heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. And so for years, God protected Judah and protected Jehoshaphat, protected and provided for them in ways that really are unimaginable. The enemies that were surrounding Israel and Judah specifically Judah, would bring gifts and bring things and lay them at his feet. Now, I don't know if you ever had another time in history where an enemy says, look, your, your name and your fame and respect for you has grown to this point that we're going to bring and we're going to give you things. But that's what happens with Jehoshaphat. You see in verse 10, this is what happens as well. He says that after this, or sorry, verse 10. No, go back to verse 10 of chapter 17. Thank you. And the fear of the Lord fell upon all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, and they made no war against Jehoshaphat. And so all these surrounding kings and all these surrounding kingdoms decide that they don't want to be around Judah because they're fearing God because Jehoshaphat is walking faithfully in obedience with him. And so here's this scene, here's this setup where God has protected this group of people. And you've been in that situation in your life where you just felt this season where God is protecting your family, protecting your job, protecting your health, and it's just a season of favor and grace in that way. And then as we get to chapter 20, things begin to change. Here's this man, Jehoshaphat, whose name had grown in great respect throughout all the region, who had amassed this army of over a million people who had expanded the kingdom and the territories beyond what people thought was possible for Judah. And then in chapter 18, something must have gone to the boy's head, and he decides to align with the king of Israel for an attack. And not long after that, he realizes that he had stepped out of God's obedience, and in chapter 19, it's full of him turning back to God and repenting and bringing reform back to the community and back to the nation and the people of Judah. And then we get to chapter 20. And I believe here God says, I want to test your faith. For years I protected you. For years you were obedient. You decided to walk out away from me and I called you back to repentance. But I want to teach you something about me and about you that I think will be meaningful for the rest of your life, Jehoshaphat. This is what it says beginning in chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. After this, after all these things have happened, all these ites begin to attack. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meonites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. So some men come to Jehoshaphat and they tell him, this is exactly what they say, there's a great multitude coming for you from Eden and beyond the sea. There are a lot of people who are coming after you. And so God has removed his hand of protection on Judah and on Jehoshaphat. And there's this attack coming against him, so much so that the people coming say, we didn't have time to stick around and count. Like, you're outnumbered. We are outnumbered in this situation. Jehoshaphat, I don't know what we're gonna do. There's so many, we can't count them. We didn't have time to take count, but I know there's at least three groups and three tribes and three nations coming after us. We have to do something. And in this moment, Judah and Jehoshaphat were completely outnumbered and overwhelmed. And you and I have been in those same situations. You're in that moment in life where things seems to go well, and all of a sudden, you just get punched right in the gut. And all the breath of life is knocked out of you. And you simply don't know how you're going to take another step. Everywhere you turn, like Jehoshaphat, it feels like enemy after enemy after enemy is coming after you. And they are seeking to destroy you and devour you. And you don't know how you're going to make it another day. You don't know how you're going to take another step. You don't know what you're going to do. 
to live life again. Maybe a spouse has stepped out on you. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe a diagnosis or an illness came out of nowhere, out of the blue. And life seems to be over because you don't have a plan. And you know you don't have the ability to overcome whatever it is that's standing in front of you, not in your own means. And so for the very first time, probably in Jehoshaphat's life, he is facing this attack personally, professionally, and spiritually. And the question is, what will he do? Because as the great theologian Mike Tyson said, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. (laughs) So what does he do? Look at the next verse 3. This is what happens. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. I bet he was afraid. He should have been afraid. I mean, he had never really had to seemingly fight for anything in his life, and everything seemed to go well. And all of a sudden, these ites are coming after him. This attack is coming upon him. I bet he was afraid. But look what he does. He was afraid, and so this is what he did. He set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. The very first thing he said is, I'm scared. I'm scared to death, which is the natural human reflex to attacks and to the enemy. It is natural and normal for us to be afraid. It's just naturally what we do when we can't control a situation, when we can't see how things are going to play out, when we don't know how we're gonna be able to live through another day, how we're gonna get another job, where the money's gonna come from. We simply just are scared. We're scared of everything we cannot see and everything we cannot conquer easily. And most of the time, instead of doing what Jehoshaphat does, we start running to other people. We start questioning God's ability. We start doubting our own faith. We start wondering why he didn't come through. But in this instant, as soon as he says, I'm afraid, Jehoshaphat runs directly toward God and says, we need you now more than ever. And the very thing that he does is the very characteristic that gives him peace in the midst of the destruction headed his way. Look at verse 6. Jehoshaphat said, O Lord God, our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hands are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. First thing he does, he runs to God. He says, I'm scared, I'm afraid, but I remember, hallelujah, I remember your name, Yahweh. You're mighty, you're powerful, you're majestic, you're able. I remember the name that Moses brought to the people. I am. Anything that you need, any fear, any doubt, any uncertainty, any question, he says, I am, I'm here, I've got it, and I'm not just distant. I'm personal, I'm intimate, I'm knowable. I am here with you. And Jehoshaphat says, God, I trust you. You're sovereign over everything. I don't know how this situation is going to work out. I don't know how I'm going to get through. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this circumstance in my life because I feel like I can't do anything about it. I've had life knocked out of me. But I know one thing. I know I can trust you because you're powerful and you're sovereign and you're in control. And this did not catch you by surprise. And he continues in verse 7. Did you not, our God, this is what I would expect the rest of the the verse to say. Did you not, oh God, see this coming? Did you not, oh God, know this was going to happen to me? Did you not know that these enemies at some point were going to attack me? God, did you not even know you removed your own hand of protection? God, what's wrong with you? How dare you let me go through this? How dare you let me struggle? How dare you not see this coming? God, did you not know this was going to happen? But Jehoshaphat says, did you not, our God, 
already drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. It's a reminder of God's past faithfulness. Instead of running to God and say, how dare you? Jehoshaphat pulls out the record books and says, look, you remember that time when our people were struggling? Look what God did. You remember that other time when they walked out of faith with God and out of obedience with God and he still loved them and cared for them? Look what he did. If you know biblical history and if you don't, you you need to read and understand what's going on, the power and majesty that this God has. If you know biblical history, what he says, Jehoshaphat says, I'm living in the promised land that God said thousands of years before that we would occupy. And I am occupying this land. So God had to have been faithful to the promise he made in the past. And every single thing that our people needed, God miraculously parted the water. Our people needed out of Egypt and God sent 10 plagues and we didn't just leave Egypt, we left with all the Egyptian stuff. We got to the Red Sea and God says, I need you to trust me. And they said, I don't know how we're gonna trust you. God says, just wait a minute, I'll part the Red Sea. You'll walk across, the enemy will die. God, we're coming up to the land that you promised, but these people inside, they look like giants. I don't know how we're gonna defeat them. God says, it's okay, I've already planned for this. I'll take care of it. Miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle for Jehoshaphat to stand in this place and say, God, look at the record books. Look at what you've done, your faithfulness every single time. You have never failed your people. You have never failed to protect. You have never failed to provide. And when you and I are in those moments, one of the greatest things we can do is go back and bring out those record books, the journals, the memories, the history of every time we thought it was impossible that God makes a way. And I don't mean God's a genie in a bottle, whatever you need, you just rub it and he's gonna come out and answer your prayer. He's gonna move on your behalf for your good, but ultimately for his glory so that his name shines above all. Because remember, he's Yahweh, he's mighty and above all things. And those moments of uncertainty, of fear and doubt, the best thing you and I can do is recount his faithfulness time and time and time again. So then he gets close to the end of his prayer. And this is what he says. He says in verse 12, Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them, our enemies? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. So he stands in front of God and he begs him, God, after I've acknowledged your greatness, after I've said these things to you and I've acknowledged your power and I've recounted the past and your faithfulness, God, I'm begging you, I'm beseeching you, I'm asking you, will you please move on my behalf? Will you remove these enemies? Will you destroy them? Will you execute them? We don't pray like that anymore. I don't. I don't like to impose on people, much less on God. But if you look back at the history of the people of God, there are men begging him to change his mind, begging him to move on their behalf. Not so they can get a a, a bigger 401k or a better house, but so that he would move for his name and for his glory and for his people. They're begging God, take this away from us. Remove this, because I know you can. I've seen you do it in the past and I know you're powerful and you're mighty and your name says that's who you are. Anything that stands in front of us, anything of difficulty, you said, I am, I can handle it, I can take care of it. And so to not pray like that questions the ability of God. Hebrews tells us we come into the throne room not tiptoeing, not dropping a note under the door. We come busting through the door because Jesus already opened it for us. 
We come boldly with power and we say, God, I need you now. But at the very same time, he also says, God, we're powerless. I've got nothing. And if you don't move, I am in great despair. And the key to that for me is, this is the man, this is why we started with chapter 17. This is the man who had amassed an army of a million plus. This is a man who had fortified and built and expanded cities. This is a man who enemies had brought him bounty and booty, who had all the things you could imagine, all the resources to attack this circumstance and this problem. And in that very moment, Jehoshaphat counts none of it of value. Nothing that I have around me tangibly or physically can help me in this moment. God, you're the only one. I am powerless, and if you don't move, nothing's gonna happen. But the way he ends his prayer shows us that he is not a man without hope. He ends it in chapter 20, verse 12. We do not know, God, what we're going to do. We have no idea. If you don't show up, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't have a plan. I don't have a rule book. I don't have finances laid out for this. I don't have another situation. I don't have a plan B or C or D. I don't have another option. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what to do in this moment, God, because I've tried and exhausted everything. I just know you're able and you're powerful, and I don't know what I'm going to do. So this is what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to keep my eyes on you because that's all I got. That's the only thing I have is to keep my eyes focused on you because I know you're able, I know you're mighty, I know you're powerful, and sometimes I know you're willing to do specific things on behalf of mankind. And unfortunately for us, in those times, we turn toward the experts. We turn toward our friends. We turn toward internet blogs and social media, hoping they will provide the answer. But Jehoshaphat says, I only got one thing. The only thing I can do, the only thing I can do is keep my eyes on you. That, that's it. God, our eyes are on you. I can't see a way through. I don't see how it's physically, naturally possible for this to change. I don't see how anybody could make this work. I don't know how any doctor could heal me. I don't know how anyone could love me. I don't know any job that could provide for me. I don't know. But what I do know is that with you, I am not hopeless. And so what I will do, God, is I will keep my eyes looking toward you. And in that moment, God sent a prophet, Jehoshaphat, and to the people of Judah. And the prophet says this in chapter 20, verse 15. This is what he tells Judah and to the people. And the prophet said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid. This is the very thing that Jehoshaphat went to God. The very first thing he says, God, I'm scared to death. And the very first thing God says back to Jehoshaphat, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be scared. Remember, I am. You don't have to live in fear. Remember, I got this. You don't have to be scared and you don't have to be dismayed at this great horde. Look, I know it's a big deal. I know it's a huge circumstance. I'm not discounting what you're going through. I acknowledge it's a big deal. But you don't have to be scared and you don't have to be dismayed because watch this. It's not your fight. It's not your battle. I am 
It's my battle. I am, I got this. I am, it didn't catch me off guard. Yahweh, I know you and I love you. And I will provide for you. I will care for you in this moment. Verse 17, he continues. You will not need to fight this battle. Instead, stand firm and hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Again, don't be scared. Don't be dismayed. I've got this. But tomorrow, here's what I want you to do. Tomorrow, don't sit back in your easy chair. Don't sit back in your lounge chair. Don't sit back and close your eyes for 10 seconds and pray and hope it's all figured out. Tomorrow, what I want you to do is I want you to go out against this fight. I want you to go out against this enemy. And I want you to stand. I want you to face this with faith and with trust. And I'll be with you. I will stand there in front of you. And so God provided for the people a comfort and a command. God says, I am with you. Do not be afraid because God will win this fight. Look what he says. Do not be afraid because I will win. You don't have to be scared because this is my battle. I got it. But here's what I want you to do. This is the command. I need you to show up and get ready for the fight. I need you to step up and show faith and show trust. I need you to be present. I need you to wake up every day going to battle and getting ready and trusting in me because I'm gonna win this thing. But I need you to have faith and in having faith, I need you to show up. Problem is we just want God to fix it. We just wanna close our eyes and wait 10 seconds and hope when we open them it's all taken care of. Or at least if he doesn't fix it. We want him to show us the details of the plan of how it will be fixed. And God says, no, I just need you to show up. I just need you to wake up and trust. I just need you to, the first thing that you do is acknowledge me and my sovereignty and my rule over all things, even the enemy coming after you and the attack that is over you. God says, I just need you to be ready for battle. I, I got it. Jehoshaphat says, yeah, but God, God, we're powerless God, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Jehoshaphat said, God, I, I got nothing. We, I can't show up at the fight. I have no power to overcome this. God says, it's okay. I am. It's okay. I, I am. Jehoshaphat, God, I'm so powerless. I'm, I'm so drained. I'm so exhausted. I, I have no ability. I am powerless in this situation. God says, okay, I am. I am powerful, I am all-knowing, I'm sovereign, I'm loving, I'm kind, I'm caring, I'm rescuer, I'm savior, I'm friend, I'm husband, I'm father, I'm healer. It's okay, I am. So in verse 18, Jehoshaphat bows his head before God. With his face to the ground and all of Judah, everyone gathered around him, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They fell down and before the Lord and they began to worship him. Don't miss this. Battle's not been won yet. They haven't even stepped onto the battlefield. They haven't even suited up. And they begin praising God because of who he is, even before the battle is won. And it's not just false hope. I want you to see what this hallelujah, this praising, this singing to God is. It's not just I hope God does. Verse 21. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Look where he puts the choir. In front of the army. Okay, that's a great plan. They'll all shoot their arrows and by the time they're reloading, the army will come through and kill everybody, right? It's like sacrifice the choir so that the army can win. 
Jehoshaphat didn't put the, arm, the choir in the front because he just wanted a defense, a, a protection, a buffer. He put the choir in the front because it was their defense. Because their song, their hallelujah, their praise, their trust to God, it was their defense. It was the thing that God would use to win victory and to win the battle because of their trust and their faith in him and their showing up. God says, you just sing your song. You just lift praise to me. It's not emotive and it's not without substantive value. It is depth because it is grit and character because it's the nature of God, the character of God and the word of God. You just keep singing those songs back to me and you trust in me to win the fight and win the war. It was their defense. In the midst of circumstance. And in verse 22. And when they began to sing. As soon as they began to sing. And they began to praise. The Lord set an ambush. They didn't do it. They didn't have a plan. The Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Who had come against Judah so that they were routed. Not not just defeated. Completely and utterly destroyed. See their song and their Their praise was their declaration of trust in God no matter what they faced. And so God moved on his behalf and their behalf so much so that the enemies that were coming after them got confused and started destroying themselves. And God does the unimaginable in the very moment we just cannot imagine something coming through. But God says, you go stand out in the field because it's out in the field you'll see the salvation of the Lord. It's out in the field you'll see the movement of God. It's out trusting him, not hanging back, not waiting in the back, hoping that everybody else takes care of it or that it goes away or gets shoved under the rug, but out in the battlefield, standing there saying, God, I really don't have any armor on. I don't have any protection. I don't have any weapons. The only thing I've got of defense is singing my praise to you and trusting you that you're gonna come through. And that's exactly what they did. And God turned the enemy against themselves and they dissolved themselves into nothing. And so when they would win a battle or win a war, they would go out on the battlefield and they would take all the spoils, all the gold, silver, all the armor, anything they could get to take back with home, with them home as their prize. Scripture goes on to say that Judah went out into the field and they gathered for hours to the point that their arms could not hold anymore. They went back and they took it home. And they came back to the field again the next day. And they gathered all of the bounty and all the booty and all the armor, all the weapons that were meant to destroy them. And they filled their arms up again till they could not hold anymore. And they took it all back home. And one more day, three days. For three days, the enemy was so great coming after them that it took Judah three days to gather all of their belongings to take back home. God says, I don't need you to fight the battle. I just need you to trust me. I know you're powerless and you don't have the ability to overcome whatever you're going through. You just have to believe that I do. I'm not always going to do it in your time and the way you want, the way you desire. But my plans will never be thwarted and no one can ever overcome me. I just need you to keep singing. I just need you to keep singing my praise back to me which shows a declaration of trust and belief that God, whatever you choose to do, I know you can and I know you will. See, the thing is, Judah, Judah never had to lift a sword. They simply just raised their hallelujah. God says, I just need you to show up, show up for the battle, ready, trusting me that if I don't show up, you'll be devoured. But your trust in me 
Your song to me says, we believe in you. And we will lift our hallelujah. So I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what you're going through. We all go through seasons of doubt, uncertainty, difficulty, pain, struggle. And sometimes instead of running back to God and lifting our hallelujah, because it's easy to do it on the mountaintops. It's easy to do it when we got a promotion, we got a new job or a new car, got a new relationship. It's easy to praise God in those moments. But that only shows we trust God for what he can do, not for who he is. And God said, I am. I'm not a genie. I just am. My greatness, my power, my might. But at the same time, personable, intimate, and knowable. I know your circumstance. I know your situation. You say, God, I'm powerless. It's okay. I am. I'm powerful. I'm enough. God, I'm lonely. It's okay. I'm walking alongside you. I am your comforter and your counselor and your friend. God, I've been abandoned. I've been left hopeless. It's okay. I'm Abba, Father, Daddy. You can rest and trust in me. I don't know what it is for you. I just know all of us have the same response. It's to raise and to lift our hallelujah because nobody can take that away from you. Paul and Silas, the government, try to do it to them. They try to put them in prison and beat them and throw them in chains. At midnight, in the greatest moment of despair, they began raising their hallelujah because nobody could take that away from them. And nobody can take yours from you. So I'm going to give you a moment. We're going to pray, and I, I, I want you to move. I, not for me, not for our behalf, because all of us have struggles, all of us have issues, all of us have difficulties and doubts. I need you to move. God needs you to move. Maybe in your heart, maybe it's not tangible and visible. But for some of you, it is. Some of you need to stand. Some of you need to come down the front and pray and say, God, I need in this moment, I just need to raise my hallelujah to you and I need to declare my trust. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to come through. But I just need to declare, I trust you. I'm singing you back to you because you're all I've got. And nobody can take my hallelujah from me. So I'm going to pray. And you guys move how God leads. Let's go. Father, We have all and are all going through moments of uncertainty and doubt and fear and question. We simply, at moments, do not know. We don't have a plan. We don't have a process. We don't have a resource. And even if we do have resources, God, we know they're not enough in this moment. God, we need you, we beseech you, we beg you, we plead with you to move on our behalf because we've stepped out in obedience and you've called us to this place, out into the field, out into the valley, and God, we're waiting, we're trusting in you, we're actively waiting on you to do what you said you would do. And so God, help us, no matter what anybody tries to take away from us, our physical ability, our health, our job, our sources of income, God, nobody can take my hallelujah from me, which means nobody can take my God, not just emotive words that we sing to melodies. Nobody can take my trust and nobody can remove my God. God, I look back at the history and the record books of who you are and what you have done, and I trust you because you have always been faithful. I can't see in this moment. I don't know how it's going to work out. But I know that you do because you're sovereign, you're mighty, and you are I am. And you care about me specifically because you're Yahweh. It's the personal name you gave to yourself to show love to me. 
And so God, I trust you and I sing to you no matter what happens. I lift my hallelujah to my God, to I am, to Yahweh.